Hi, welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. Today's guest has an interesting spin on the difference between her expectations for the pregnancy and birth and her experience. Going into pregnancy, she had a number of health conditions that led to a lot of cautionary talks about the many things that could go awry. And then when she actually was pregnant, she more or less skated through a problem-free pregnancy. So she's left both feeling grateful to have outrun so many serious issues and sad about the fact that she didn't get to enjoy what was basically a straightforward pregnancy because she was constantly on alert. After we spoke, I talked to a wonderful midwife about this very tricky balance between giving patients enough information so they feel informed, but not so much as to make them anxious, which is as difficult as it sounds. Let's get to this inspiring story. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? Hi, my name is Lisa Mangini, and I'm from Central Pennsylvania. Oh, nice. We're here to talk about the family you and your partner created, but sometimes the family you set out to create is intimately related to the one you came from. So first, let's briefly talk about the family you came from. Did you grow up with siblings? I did not. I'm an only child. Oh, interesting. Um, And also, I was the only grandchild until I was about 10, so lots of adults around me for most of my childhood. Growing up as an only child, did that make you want to have your own kids or to have any influence on kind of how you saw your future? You know, it's really interesting because when I was very little, I talked a lot about, um, you know, I want to have eight kids and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And because I didn't have my first child until I was almost 37, my mom would remind me of that (laughs) pretty frequently. And I'd have to defend myself and say, you know, I was like six years old (laughs) when I said those things. So. So it sounds like it wasn't directly relevant to your path. I mean, it's definitely, I definitely life, my life went into a different direction, right? I think, you know, as you mature and think about what having a family does to your life, you know, that changes, but yeah, it has, it has not shaped much of my decision in terms of like having children or how many. So before you got pregnant, what do you think pregnancy would be like? Ah, I actually, I have. I expected it to be a lot worse (laughs) than my experience was. I think my mom had a very difficult pregnancy. Um, My aunt had a very difficult pregnancy. And I have just heard a lot of stories where it's, you know, it's really, it's just like a very trying experience for a lot of women, just like beyond the normal discomfort, like there's preeclampsia, there's this. My mom had really bad hyperemesis and was hospitalized a bunch. And so I remember hearing a lot about that and just thinking like, well, I'm probably doomed for that <laughs> when I'm pregnant. But yeah, no, it was it was actually like a really wonderful pregnancy. So I was um, pleasantly surprised by that. Oh, great. So did you get pregnant easily? I did. Yeah. I think part of what I love so much about like talking about my experience with pregnancy and birth is that I have kind of a complicated medical history. And so I welcome to the club. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's sort of like, that's something you learn too. When you talk about like having a baby, everybody's like, Oh, well I had, I had this medical thing that made it, you know, complicated for me or influenced my pregnancy or my desire to have children or all that kind of stuff where I have polycystic ovaries. And so I was told my whole life that like, I might not be able to have a child. I might have really difficult time conceiving. And that was not the case. So here's a brief description of polycystic ovaries. The cause is currently unknown. It's a hormonal condition that can lead to irregular periods, too much male hormone, and or cysts on the ovaries, thus the name, and issues with the ovaries that frustrate their normal function. 
It can also mess with your body's ability to manage insulin and cause fertility issues. According to the CDC, between 6 and 12% of women have this condition in their reproductive years. And then also I have, not that long ago, I, I bizarrely got kind of like a midlife epilepsy diagnosis just a few years back, and that really came out of left field. To give a little context, according to the Mayo Clinic, epilepsy is a neurological disorder in which there's an abnormal electrical brain activity that can lead to seizures, strange sensations, and or loss of awareness. It's pretty common. About 3 million Americans have the diagnosis, and for half of the cases, there's no apparent cause. Which, of course, complicates. I didn't know this at the time, but apparently really complicates pregnancy because I was on medication that can lead to a lot of birth defects. Some of the things that can trigger epilepsy include like lack of sleep, hormone changes, stress, like all of these things that are kind of part and parcel with pregnancy and childbirth and being a parent. So given that epilepsy isn't uncommon, the mixing of epilepsy and pregnancy isn't necessarily uncommon either. Estimates suggest that 1.1 million women with epilepsy are of childbearing age. And here's the thing. Seizures can be dangerous to the mother and the baby. There's a risk of SUDEP, which is sudden unexplained death in epilepsy for untreated seizures in the mother. So in general, doctors want their patients to continue medications to control their epilepsy. And here's the tricky part. Some of these medications lead to higher risk for birth defects. The main ones that people talk about are spina bifida and abnormalities in heart development. It looks like the current research suggests this depends on both the kind of medications that are being taken and the doses, and that can be managed with your doctor. But one thing to note is that the spine starts forming in the fetus really early on. So epilepsy meds should be figured out before someone with epilepsy gets pregnant. Yeah, so it's just kind of like, I was very surprised at how smooth it went given sort of like the, the kind of atmosphere that I went into it with. So I think for me, hormones were definitely related to it. I will say that, you know, they, when they diagnosed it, it's sort of like, technically I have um, generalized seizure disorder because even though it is epilepsy, like they couldn't find it in the EEG or the MRI that they did. And so they have to like technically like find the electrical impulse that's misfiring in your brain to have that diagnosis. But they're like, we're pretty sure <laughs> this is what it is. But yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, they don't always manifest as like the big traditional seizures. I've only had a couple of those, which is what led to the diagnosis. But I have a lot of like what you would call like mini seizures where you kind of like zone out and get like really disoriented. And it's just kind of like, you feel a little bit out of touch with reality. So, but yeah, I mean, all of that was just like very new or just sort of like happened and they don't know what caused it. So it's just sort of like, here you go. Here's a surprise. So that is a surprise. So are they concerned about you? Do you get special? Are you watched carefully while you're pregnant? I was watched very carefully when I was pregnant. The drug I am on, my neurologist who um, really amazingly, I happen to be set up with a neurologist just by happenstance that specializes in women's neurology. And oh, so, wow. yeah, I was so lucky. And so she was really just like very involved in a way that I didn't think a neurologist ever would be with a pregnancy. But she offered a lot of great guidance and told me, it's just like, you know, you have to take, make sure you take, you know, five grams of folic acid every day, like even before you try to start conceiving, you know, because otherwise it can lead to like, I was at a much greater risk for neural tube defects. Oh, okay. So in the baby. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so 
So it was really like, I had a couple extra scans. It was very, for that 20 week scan, it was very sort of like a lot of holding our breath to make sure everything looked okay, because that's sort of when, when those kinds of realities would manifest and make themselves known. So, so did you do the like nuchal translucency test at 12 weeks or something and that you can't be let off the hook early? We did. We did not do that. We did the um, non-invasive pregnancy test where they take like a blood draw and they can collect the fetal cell DNA and um, test through that to see if there's any chromosomal issues. But yeah, there was no like, I guess for like the 12 and 13 week range, there was not enough development to see if those kinds of issues had happened yet. And so we had to wait further in to see if there were any problems. Well, that sounds already fairly dramatic. Are you, does that mean that you're being seen by like maternal fetal medicine or you're with an OB? Yeah, I, so I saw, I had this really great kind of best of both worlds situation where I did have an MFM and I also had a midwife instead of an OB. So like a little bit, some of the really specialized kinds of care from the MFM, but also more of a holistic kind of patient-centered kind of care from the midwife. So I, I had a really great experience with that. Yeah, that does sound kind of dream teamy. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. So tell us about the pregnancy. Other than the wait for that 20-week scan, and and are, do you just breathe a huge sigh of relief after the scan? And can they tell you while they're doing it, or they do the scan and then they have to call you later? I thought for sure, because I've had scans for different stuff before in my life, right? And so... I envision sort of like being in there for 30 minutes or so they're scanning, they're taking pictures of stuff. And when I've asked before at other appointments for things that were not pregnancy related, they're like, well, we can't tell you, you have to send it to the radiologist. Right. And this time she was able to say, you know, this is, this is his spine here. And this is, you know, I'm measuring like the circumference of his belly right now, which was great and so reassuring. Yeah. And so that was a really great experience. I remember too, there was, there was something they couldn't quite get like a great picture of. And so we had to go for a follow-up scan, but I was so nervous. I, I asked her, I was like, so like, are we okay to like go buy a crib at Ikea after this? <laughs> Cause I was just so worried that I think it was just really hard for me to, to, to feel that relief and be like, this is, this is okay. Everything's okay here because I was so prepared for something to to not be okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds scary. And now I have read and talked to a couple of people that now they're doing fetal surgeries for fetuses with neural tube defects and they can't entirely reverse whatever's been done, but they can dramatically change the trajectory of those kids' lives. I have heard about this and no one ever mentioned that as something that, that I would potentially be a candidate for if they found something like that. And I think that's one of those things where, you know, they wait to bring it up until there's a need to. I've heard of that. And I remember being just really floored that that was something that we could do. Like medicine is really incredible. Amazing. Amazing. Totally agree. Once you make it by 20 weeks, then what's the pregnancy look like? Really, like, really great. (laughs) You know, I, um, I was flagged for so many things where I had to do two of the glucose tolerance tests. I was warned a lot about preeclampsia and all kinds of other really horrible things. Like I was made to feel 
like I, I should expect kind of like the world to just sort of like crumble out underneath me for this pregnancy where it's like, well, this might happen. You have to be really careful with this. You're probably going to have this problem. And none of that happened. And so I feel incredibly lucky for that, but also a little disappointed that like, I didn't have the opportunity to enjoy this really like beautiful, (laughs) easy, not scary pregnancy because I, I was sort of encouraged to be on high alert the whole time. This is a really interesting question. And I think a hard line to walk about how much information to give so as not to freak a person out, but so that you're not also completely surprised if something happens, right? This is a really tricky, I hear all the time people say like, oh, you know, we don't want to talk about preeclampsia or, you know, name your scary issue here because we'll be scaring women. At the same time, I almost feel like it's worse if it, if you're surprised by it. If, if you had no idea that this was even a possibility, a possible path you could be on. Yeah. You know, I think that is a really great point, right? Where I'm also somebody who, I think in some ways I also did that to myself where I like to know everything. I want to know all the things I, I would go to these appointments with a long list of questions to ask. And, you know, and I would know like, this thing about my health history makes me at higher risk for X, Y, Z. What are your thoughts on that? Where, you know, I, I work for university, I teach rhetoric a lot of the time. Right. And so I'm really interested in sort of like analysis and fact gathering and all that kind of stuff. And apparently it follows me into the doctor's office. So, (laughs) um, so I think some of that, I did ask to know some of that stuff and I probably did internalize some of those scary things. Well, but also, can you imagine if you, if your child did have a neural tube defect and no one had warned you that you were at high, right? You'd think they were, they were not taking good care of you. So yeah. it's just, oh. I just think it's a totally tricky thing. And I also had, I had a lot of issues in both of my pregnancies. A doctor spent a lot of time managing expectations by telling me all the terrible things that could happen. Mm. And I'm, I'm on the fence about, you know, it, it did in some way shape your expectations. So you feel lucky. Because you you outran all these things, right? At the same time, while you're in it, you're not you're not really at your leisure ever. You're you know at your computer looking up neural tube defect and folic acid, right, or something else. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right with that. Where I think there is there is some no winning there, right? Because you don't want to be blindsided, but it's also really hard. I think managing expectations is a great way to talk about it, right? Because um, I can look back and be like, what an amazing pregnancy. This was so great. Nothing went wrong. And it's like, I spent every week at the the Quest Lab getting blood drawn, like every, every single week. And it was just, that would not be something that I think most people would, would find like totally great and fine about their pregnancy. Right, right. Yeah. So this is a difficult question from a patient perspective, and I wondered what a care provider thinks about this issue. I took these questions to an amazing certified nurse midwife who's been practicing for more than a decade. Today, we are lucky to have a fabulous midwife on to talk about how you treat complicated issues of pregnancy with women, which I realize is a giant topic, but thank you so much for coming on and to share your expertise. I feel like I don't deserve description of expertise, but I'll do my best. And I so appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm totally interested in your take on this. So so Lisa said she was flagged for a million things. She had two glucose tests. They worried about preeclampsia. She was made to feel like she should expect all these terrible things to happen. 
and and none of them ended up happening. And she said, obviously, like, yeah. I feel very lucky. At the same time, I didn't get to enjoy the pregnancy for a second because everyone sort of yeah. told me that I should be on high alert. As a midwife, how do you see that tension or how do you manage that? I would say that's absolutely one of the most challenging aspects of this role. I think especially as a midwife, because our expertise is in low risk care. And so, you know, when someone comes in who has, you know, I don't like to say high risk, but higher risk conditions. I'm lucky enough to be in a practice where I work closely with my physician colleagues. And so we can really do like collaborative care and kind of link the physicians in on the higher risk aspects, but still overall try to approach a woman's care as, you know, pregnancy and birth as, as low risk overall with, you know, maybe some hiccups and, and extra steps needed along the way. But part of my job as a midwife is to recognize when something is no longer within my scope. I do not like risking women out of my care, out of the care of my colleagues, but sometimes things become high risk enough that, that we need to. That being said, you know, it's so, it's so tough to know how to ride that line of informing a woman about the implications of high risk conditions, but also not terrifying her because exactly what you said made me so sad that she didn't feel like she got to enjoy a second of her pregnancy. Pregnancy is hard enough, even if it is low risk and you don't have these, these conditions going into it that, you know, some women find even a low risk pregnancy hard to enjoy, but if, if, you feel like you can't because you're constantly concerned or constantly being flagged. It's just, it's a bummer and it's, it's a loss. I think it's a huge loss. Even if everything, like you mentioned, she feels lucky that nothing did go wrong. She, she lost the ability to enjoy that pregnancy, which is so hard to hear. And, and I'm just very sad for her in that regard. From the provider's perspective, again, I, I think that's the hardest thing I deal with is How do I give someone all of the information I feel like I'm obligated to, to really get, you know, maybe true informed consent or really involve patients in in decision-making and yet not scare them. And still, I struggle with this on the daily, but like on labor and delivery, for example, if someone, like you mentioned, preeclampsia, you know, preeclampsia can have devastating outcomes for moms and babies. Now, does that happen often? Absolutely not but it's one of the most common conditions we see that runs a huge spectrum in, you know, some elevated blood pressures that, you know, we see in labor and presumably will go away to after the the mom gives birth and the placenta is delivered to someone who struggles or deals with, you know, terrifyingly high blood pressures, both in labor, post-birth, post-pregnancy, that have them on medications because their risk of seizure and or stroke is very high and or they experience one of those conditions. Yeah. And so when I'm counseling someone, it's like, it's so hard not to go to one end of the spectrum because of the higher risk conditions, it's more common, you know, someone who has generalized seizure disorder, but a lot of providers have seen the really scary end of the preeclampsia spectrum. And so it's impossible not to have that sort of enter your mind because you go to that patient who had that seizure or that stroke in an instant. And you don't want to impart that on other patients, but you know what can happen. And so riding that line of how do I really give her all of the information, not try to scare her, but let her know that this could have very serious consequences if not intervened is, oh God, I feel like daily struggle. Do it 
you know, well or better than others. Some days I feel like I don't do it well at all. So I'm not claiming I know the answer. I'm just saying I always find it kind of tricky to talk about and I don't know how I feel about it. I think too, like I've neglected to mention here too, that the year prior, um, I also had an early miscarriage probably around like 10 or 11 weeks. And so I think that definitely colored a lot of my experience going in where, you know, I felt, I think definitely a degree of paranoia about anything that could possibly happen. And so I think part of them being honest about what could happen, but also downplaying it was the best they could do for me. Yeah. And I think I still felt that very, to be very hard to believe. So. Yeah. I mean, the weird state of pregnancy is that you feel entirely responsible because it's happening in your body, but you don't really have any control. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. There's not, you can, all you can do is take the folic acid and, you know, not smoke cigarettes and get drunk. Right. Those are your It's really funny because I was having this discussion with my therapist of like, I should be exercising more and I should be doing this and that. And she's like, here, here are your ground rules, right? Take your meds. Don't drink. Don't do drugs. Like don't smoke cigarettes. <laughs> it was just like, those are the things you can control. And so I think that's, that's clearly, you know, great advice. But, but I agree with you. It's very, once you have a miscarriage, it's very hard not to think. Uh, you know, whatever, I shouldn't sleep on my side or some yeah. nonsense, right? That you uh, imagining that you can affect what's going on by your actions. Well, so I'm glad it was totally smooth. Now, take us to the day that the baby is born. How do you know today's the day? What does that look like? Yeah. So I know that it's the day because I am getting pretty overdue. And because I was 36, you know, the recommendations are don't go past 41 weeks. And so we have a scheduled induction and I remember sort of being, I I just didn't expect it. I don't know if I just, I don't know if it's again, part of that fear where it's like, I might, am I going to labor early or something like that? But I remember my last several appointments, the physician would just be like, well, see you next week if you're still pregnant. And it got to that last, you know, 39 and a half week appointment. They're like, well, we need to get you scheduled to have this baby. And so my induction is scheduled on a Monday morning. They tell me to show up at 6 a.m. Okay, wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there. Yeah. What were you imagining for the birth? Oh my God. I was so worried I was gonna have a seizure. I went to like three different birthing classes because I was so like just very scared. I yeah, I think I had a lot of skepticism with people who talked about birth as like this really beautiful, transformative experience. It was like this, this is like it's gory, it's painful, it's super scary, it's full of ambiguity, of no control. Like, and so it's just like part of me was relieved that I was gonna have an induction because it gave me some sense of like, not that I could control it per se, but that I I knew when it was gonna happen at that point. But yeah, I think it was just sort of like, okay, like let's do this and get it behind me because I've been really worried about it for a long time. <laughs> um, and do, do do your doctors say that there's some increased threat of delivery for a seizure? Well, part of sleep deprivation is like a big universal epilepsy concern. And so being in labor for a long time and not being able to sleep is a big, it can, it can be an issue for some people. Yeah. And so that was, I think like the main concern, but also like hormones and stress are, you know, obviously and and pain, like all of those things can be seizure triggers. And I mean, I think like those are some of the first things we think of when we think of childbirth is like 
you know, a lot of hormones, a lot of stress, a lot of pain. Like it's, it's just a lot for a body to, to deal with. So did do we show up with at induction day with flowers and chocolate for the anesthesiologist or like what's our plan? <laughs> I think like we overpacked a bunch of stuff and we showed up. I did have two doulas. I only intended to have one, but another one was doing her training. And so she came along and it was her first birth as like a doula in training. And that was like a gift to myself and also kind of for my husband, because that's a lot of comforting for him to have to do for the entire time that I'm in labor. And so that was part of the plan. But yeah, I, I show up for this induction and they, I've been, they're going back and forth where, you know, are you effaced enough? And they show up to, to give me the cervidil, which is supposed to help ripen my cervix. Um, and I get an exam and the OB on, on staff that day is like, eh, why don't you go home? You're not a face enough. And then we'll give it to you, you know, come back at 6 PM. So I've already like put myself in this mental state of like, I'm going to have a baby. Like I'm going to start going into labor this morning. And they're like, well, for sleep reasons, then you can sort of like, you know, ripen overnight while you're sleeping in the hospital. So I come back and I get another exam from a different doctor. And he's like, I probably would have induced you this morning. And I was like, thanks a lot. This is great. <laughs> Off to a great start here. Yeah. And the induction takes like it from the start to end from induction to birth is 44 hours. Oh, that's too long. No, nope. it's a long, long time. No, thank you, sir. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like a lot of sleep was had. No, I, um, you know, I, that was the thing that sort of forced my hand to an epidural and not that there's anything wrong with epidurals, but I wanted to just sort of see like how far I could get without one. And it was eventually, it was like, I think one in the morning or something on day two. And I was just, I need, I need some sleep and I can't sleep through this. And so we need to get me an epidural so that I can get a good night's sleep because it's not like I was sleeping great, you know, prior to that either. So, so that was a huge thing that helped a lot and made, um, made for a safer delivery, but yeah. Um, so they give you an epidural and then you sleep and then have the baby the next morning. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> um, there's a lot of sort of work up to that too. Right. It's funny because I, I had some really wonderful nurses, but of course, like the one that stands out is, you know, the one that was maybe the least nice. And she keeps coming in and, and telling me that like, I'm not, I don't sound like a woman in labor. It's just like, you're not progressing enough because you, women in labor sound a certain way. And so she was just very doubtful that like I was progressing at all. And then a midwife came in and examined me. It's like, oh, you're five centimeters. She's like, I told you, <laughs> you know, so it's very interesting to think about like how, how people don't always believe you, right? Like people have this picture of like what giving birth looks like. Yeah. And even if you're like an, a, a labor and delivery nurse, you still sort of, after seeing lots and lots of births, like you still have kind of this idea of like what a birth should sound and look like. But yeah, they had to, I had so many interventions. I took a childbirth class that like really emphasized the benefits of, you know, as few interventions as possible you know, based on sort of research and that kind of thing. And I, I, I believe in data, right? Like, I think that's important, but also sort of know that data does not reflect the needs of every individual person's circumstances. And so it's just sort of like every, <laughs> at every turn, it's like, well, okay, I guess we're going to have to, you know, rupture my membranes now. It's like, okay, I guess we're going to have to give me, you know, more Pitocin. 
Um, I think the standard dose of Pitocin is something like two or three units. And at one point I was up to 40. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they had to get like special approval to give me that much because this baby was just not coming out. <laughs> Comfortable. Yeah. Very healthy in there. Apparently it was, a, you know, it really was like a great healthy pregnancy because he was happy to just stay in there forever if we would let him. Yeah. And so, you know, and eventually I specifically looked at hospitals that had like the wireless monitors and stuff. And they're like, well, our Bluetooth isn't working. And you know, this, the one that's belted around you is like, it's not staying put. And so then I had to get this internal contraction monitor and internal heart rate monitor where they put the hook in your baby's scalp. I have the epidural. And so then I'm catheterized. So I've just like got everything, you know, I've got an IV full of Pitocin and also a bunch of penicillin because I'm strepi positive. Like I just, I, I'm like bionic woman at this point with like all of these things attached to me. Yeah. And it was just, it was such a wild experience and it lasted forever. Yeah. Um, but it was also really great. Like I, you know, I, I was really surprised at how, how positive it was considering all of like the stuff that had to happen to me. Um, I remember, I literally remember being in between contractions and asking, how's he doing? Like some, I wanted someone to tell me like how his heart rate was doing because I was just so concerned where I was in labor for so long. I think it was an active labor for something like 30 hours. And I was so worried because I know that the reason a lot of people end up with C-sections is because it's just too, it adds too much distress to the baby to be in labor that long. And so I was really kind of waiting for that to happen. And I had those two wonderful doulas. And one of the nurses that was with me on the morning that I gave birth was also a certified doula. And the midwife I had been seeing for most of my routine appointments just happened to be the person on shift that day. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah. Which is like, cause now it's just sort of like, you know, you can go to, you can pick your provider to an extent, but you can't pick who's going to be on call at the hospital that day. And it worked out really well. And when it was getting to be about like, my son was born at like three in the afternoon and it was, I want to say like 10 30 in the morning. And we had one little heart rate dip that resolved itself in like 15 seconds, but everybody was sort of like, well, you know, we're going to start talking C-section pretty soon. And so at some point there was a little bit of a uh, stern discussion outside of the nurse's station between the midwife and the OB. And the OB was like, we need to take her to surgery. And she's like, I think we got this. And they worked on doing different kinds of positioning. I don't know. He couldn't like, he wasn't descending quite enough or like his head was kind of turned a little weird. And so that was also stalling things. And yeah. And it, it just like, she was right. Like they were able to, you know, we, we do have it. Like we were able to work it out, but it was really close. And if I had an OB instead of a midwife, I definitely would have had a C-section that day. I mean, one thing that's so interesting at the, at this, the cusp of delivery is you see how many things have to go just so to have a baby born vaginally. Yeah. Right. And when you, and when you start to pay attention to all those things, you're like, how does anyone do it? How does it ever work out? <laughs> yeah. You know, it is, it is really kind of astonishing, right. Where um, there are so many things where like the stars really have to align. And like, we were really trying to, you know, manipulate those stars, so to speak, where, you know, we're, we're inducing artificial labor. We're doing all of these things to sort of like 
push my body into the place where it can have a baby vaginally. And yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of moving pieces and it is kind of astonishing that anybody can do it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Once he's born, do you get those afterbirth moments that many women are looking for, the intimate time with your newborn? How does all that go? We do. It was really, it was, it was a nice experience, but I was sort of like, I don't know, maybe a little underwhelmed. I don't know. Like I might've just been so relieved to not be in labor anymore that I had that epidural, but it definitely stopped working at some point in the morning where I woke up and I was like, I'm only halfway numb, like bilaterally, like my right side was and my left side wasn't. And I moved around a little bit and it kind of leveled out. And then like the contractions really came back and I was like, okay, I'm pressing my button because that's what this epidural is for. And nothing happened, like absolutely nothing happened. And so I definitely, it was not, I, I don't think it was, were there probably some effects of the epidural? Probably, I don't, I don't know. I only have this one birth to go off of, but it was definitely not what I expected when people say you have an epidural because I don't think people are like, you know, hollering <laughs> if they're actually numbed up. You know, but I think I was just so, it was so exhilarating to have this baby out of me and then on top of me. But I think I expected to be more like, I don't know, like hysterical about it, just like bursting into tears. And I was really surprised that it was just sort of like, more like a, oh, okay, like we did this. So, well, but it's also true that it, I think if you're induced, that's a different release of chemicals than if your baby kicks off the delivery, right? If your water broke and even if you're getting Pitocin through an IV, it's not getting to your head. That's right? true. So, Yeah. There's a bunch of like, I, I remember learning about all these chemicals where it's like, if you're induced, you're getting, you know, I don't know, endorphins instead of this, or, you know, I forget, but it's, it's this whole very specific, you know, hormonal chemical cocktail that all comes together. Um, and again, like, it's amazing that, it, uh, that anybody is born vaginally and spontaneously because there's so much stuff that has to happen. Yeah. So how was the fourth trimester? Really challenging. In addition to me being an only child, my husband's also an only child. And so, and we live pretty far from family, you know, like five or six hours. And so it's just the two of us. It's also kind of like, mid to tail end of of COVID, right? And so like people are not, we don't want our parents, you know, driving out here a lot. Not to mention we have this teeny tiny newborn who's also really vulnerable to all infections. You know, so it's really hard because we probably could have had some help, but we did not feel particularly comfortable with the kind of help we could have had. So it's just the two of us. We obviously have no experience like taking care of younger siblings. I remember saying in the hospital that I had not held a baby in about 10 years prior to his birth. So it was really sort of like, what did I get myself into? Yeah. And he was, he had such terrible colic. My milk never really came in. And so I was like pumping to get like two ounces a day for like, and it would take like two hours to get those ounces. Good Lord. It's just, you know, there's so much emphasis on breastfeeding and how important it is and how good it is and how he needs those antibodies for all of the illnesses that are out there. And so it would be like this, this cycle of, I'm going to try to get him to latch and it's not going to go well because there's really not a lot. It's a lot of work for him to get anything out of there. And then I'm going to feed him formula and then I'm going to pump afterwards. 
Um, and then I have to wash all of these contraptions afterwards and make formula. And it was just, it got to a point where I think I was probably spending like three, three and a half hours a day, just managing, like preparing for food stuff for him, let alone actually like the time it takes to feed him. We had such a scare with him when he was about 12 weeks old because he has really bad reflux and the really messy kind. And so it was so bad at one point that the pediatrician was like, he might have pyloric stenosis, which is a narrowing at the bottom of the stomach that doesn't allow food to go through, which is why babies would like violently throw it up, which is super dangerous. And so we had a faulty ultrasound where it, it looked like he had it. We rushed to a local, uh, the children, the best children's hospital in our area. And then they redid the ultrasound. They're like, yeah, no, he's fine. <laughs> which is a wonderful relief, but you know, you spend a couple hours thinking about your teeny tiny baby undergoing surgery. Yeah. I, I gave up even trying to breastfeed or pump at that point, because um, the last thing on my mind when my child is about to go under surgery is taking my pump along with me. Right. <laughs> like it just seemed like I thought about it. It seemed like the most absurd thing in the world to me. And so it's like, we're done with this, but it was really hard. And I came back home from that and kind of like sore and thinking like, oh, there's, there's more, there's more in here than I thought. Like maybe I should still do this. And I like went back and forth for a few days trying to pump and it was just this really miserable, <laughs> really miserable headspace. Yeah. But I, I'm, when I finally walked away from that, I got so much time back to really be present with him. And so it was ultimately a really, really good thing to stop that. Do you know if your mother breastfed? So my mom did not, and my aunt did not. And I keep mentioning them because they're, I think really like the, the two women in my family that I'm most closely related to. And I'm not sure about either of my grandmothers, but both my mom and my aunt were also induced, but they had very, it's funny. They had very short inductions where I told my parents I was being induced. And when I didn't call them in eight hours, they thought something like really terrible had happened because that was kind of their, their expectation from their own experiences. And neither of them were able to breastfeed. Like it just, and I think too, there were fewer sources of support for that back then. And so I yeah, think they that, didn't have lactation consultants and all that. And, but, yeah. but, but nonetheless, like here you are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where it's just like, it's great that, you know, I saw, I think three different lactation consultants. Like I researched the best pumps that my insurance company would give me, you know, I was very, very committed to it. And I think it was because there is so much education on breastfeeding now, it was very difficult to walk away from it in a way that I don't think my family members really had to feel, right? I mean, I don't know. I probably should ask them before I assume that, but I, I don't know that it was as heart-wrenching for them when it was unsuccessful, you know? Right. Because I, I think there was just less pressure to be good at it. <laughs> okay, so with respect to breastfeeding here, the CDC recommends exclusive breastfeeding up to six months after birth. Although most infants receive some breast milk, most are not exclusively breastfeeding or continuing to breastfeed at six months. In fact, according to the CDC, for infants born in 2018, only about a quarter are breastfed exclusively for six months. And that rate in the U.S. at least varies dramatically geographically. Check out the show notes for a map from the CDC. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I, and, and I think the, um, I talked to a historian basically a historian of pregnancy. And she had said that the interest in breastfeeding has waxed and waned over the years. And so there are definitely periods where 
She said, interestingly, breastfeeding was discouraged because people thought it was dirty. You wanted to make formula because you could specifically measure how much they got and it seemed scientific. And so it just, it, it seems like one of those things that goes in cycles. And there's no question that breastfeeding is valuable and has all these positive things recommended, but but it is not end times if it doesn't work out, right? Yeah. It's, it's so interesting to me, right? Because like we buy, and I mean, my son also has like, it's a very sensitive stomach, obviously, you know, so we're buying like the most expensive, best formula that there is on the market. It's like $60 for a big can, right? Like we're not like, we're all in, right? Like we obviously care about his nutrition, but even on the can of formula, it says, you know, breast milk is the best food you can give your baby. And it's like, I don't need to read that. Like, yeah. why, is, why is the formula company telling me this, right? Like there's it just is, it just seems sort of so excessive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just, I was, I was not expecting that, you know, to see that every time I open up the, the can of powder to feed my child. <laughs> I agree. That's a weird place for that marketing. Yeah. <laughs> and so how old is your son now? He is about four and a half months. Oh, wow. Yeah. What are his tricks? Uh, <laughs> it's funny because we, we struggled with him so much just because like the colic and the, and you know, the, all of the other stuff. And he just, he would scream and scream for like a really long time. And it, it became apparent that it wasn't just colic and it wasn't, it was just, there was nothing medically wrong with him either. And he wouldn't sleep and all this stuff. And I know too, like, Every parent says like, baby is really difficult. They don't sleep. They have colic, they have this, but I would have friends come over and he would start to cry and they're like, oh, he's crying. And I'd be like, oh, this is not even crying. And when I started to see reactions, other people had to how inconsolable and, you know, just, I don't want to say theatrical because obviously he meant to, but it was just like, he has a lot of big feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Such a tiny human. Our pediatrician, we were at our wits end and she was like, maybe you just have a high needs child. And I thought it was a kind of like a general thing, but there are some babies out there that are just very, very sensitive. You know, a normal diaper change results in inconsolable screaming for like 10 minutes because, you know, it's, it's cold now. <laughs> Lisa, I think you might have a poet. <laughs> Good news. Wonderful news. Yes. <laughs> he is, it's, it's funny because he's really, he's very curious too. So maybe we will have a poet out of him, but my husband would talk to my in-laws about like, oh, our son is, you know, he's so difficult and, you know, in, an, in a loving way, of course, the way our parents talk about their, you know, tiny children who are very challenging, but they would say, oh, you were like that too. Oh, you were like that too. Um, and so apparently it can run in families where you have babies who are very, very easily overstimulated, very sensitive to noise, very fragile sleep, all kinds of stimuli can result in, you know, uh, catastrophe, <laughs> sensitive eaters, all of that kind of stuff. And so he's been from not having any experience with babies to having a baby that is really exceedingly high demand, like with, with a lot of demands, um, was quite a crash course. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. And so is he, is he over the colic now? He is. We've, we've figured out a lot about what, what works for him, where he needs a very like pitch black room with a lot of white noise, because if he gets any kind of, if he sees, you know, the crack of light in the door in the nursery, he's going to stare at it all night. And, and, you know, it's going to distract him. We figured out that he needs lots and lots of play during the daytime. You can't just, you know, put him in the boppy and expect him to entertain himself. We see pictures of him 
at daycare and, and some of the other kids there. And he, he always just sort of looks like very awake. <laughs> All of the other babies are kind of like sleeping and look very like peaceful. And he's always sort of like, you know, eyes zooming around big, big owl eyes. Taking it all in. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's, he's not as screamy anymore, but we're starting to, I think we're starting to figure out what, what works for him. So the good news is that he will not hold it against you. This learning curve. That is good. That's an interesting point where I think some of those early days we were like, are we, are we screwing him up? He's screaming so much. Is he going to remember this? <laughs> so. Thank goodness the colic has passed. And it sounds like some of these learning experiences have made it into your writing. You know, one of the things too, that makes it interesting to talk about becoming a parent, right. And becoming a mother is sort of, where do you start that story? Right. Do I start it with the epilepsy diagnosis? Do I start it with the miscarriage? Do I start it? You know? And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to tell stories about what it, the process of being pregnant and having a baby and so I'm working on a series of essays about that right now. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to put all of these pieces together just because there's so, there's so much to cover. Well, that's cool. Where can we find your writing? You can find more at lisamangini.com. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at lisaquarius. Okay, cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thank you for talking with me. Thanks again to Lisa for sharing her story and to Anne for her insights into this issue of how much is too much or too little information for patients. What I take away from Anne's insight is that for all the providers involved in our care, it's hard work to balance caution about things that could go wrong and calm for the things that are going smoothly. It's impossible for midwives and doctors not to be affected by the dramatic things they see around themselves every day. And in fact, that's why we're relying on them, their experience to guide us through this transformation. It sounds like this would be a much easier process for everyone if we had more precise science that could identify who's at risk for the more challenging outcomes and who's not, so that information can be shared accordingly. So hopefully more of those useful results will be in clinics in the not too distant future. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, feel free to like and subscribe. We'll be back soon with another story of overcoming.